The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. The night before we went to the cross, our Lord instituted the Lord's Table. It has its roots in the Old Testament. One of the things that we often do is we get involved in a teaching in the New Testament and we forget to anchor it in its Old Testament revelation. The Lord's Table is grew out of two elements in the Passover meal, the unleavened bread and the third glass or third cup of wine, which was the cup of redemption. Now, in the Old Testament observance of Passover, did two things. It reminded Israel of what God had done for them in the past in terms of redeeming them from slavery in Egypt. And then it also foreshadowed or anticipated the coming of the Messiah who would indeed free Israel and all mankind from slavery to sin. So the two elements that were taken from the Passover taught about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The bread is unleavened bread. It is unleavened because leaven represents sin. And Jesus Christ in his humanity was sinless, so the bread should be unleavened. The cup represents blood. It represents the physical shedding of blood in a sacrifice. In the Old Testament, you had physical blood sacrifices. But that, too, was a picture. Not a picture of the physical death of Jesus Christ, but a picture of his spiritual substitutionary death on the cross. Because, you see, the penalty for sin is not physical death, but spiritual death. When Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, at the instant they ate from the fruit, they died. But they didn't die spiritually for another 950 or so years. But they died spiritually at the instant they ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were separated from God. They could no longer have a relationship with God because that dimension of their immaterial makeup, what we call a human spirit to distinguish it from the Holy Spirit, the human spirit was no longer operational. And that human spirit is that aspect of the immaterial part of man that enables man to understand the things of God and to have a relationship with God. And so it is not until you put your faith alone in Christ alone and are regenerated or born again that you receive a human spirit. So man is walking around. The walking dead have no human spirit. They have a soul, but they do not have a human spirit. That is clear from Jude 19, which says in the Greek, not in any English translation, because they're all badly translated, but it says in the Greek that they are soulish, not having a spirit. Meekein pneumatos, not having a spirit. So not having a spirit means that they do not, there's something missing, there's some dimension missing that is acquired at the instant of salvation. God creates and imparts to us a human spirit. And that in human spirit, in a sense, completes us because it enables all the facets of the soul, the self-consciousness, mentality, emotion, volition, and conscience to relate to God and to operate on a divine viewpoint. So the Lord's table 
is designed to teach us about the person of Jesus Christ in his impeccability, that he was qualified to go to the cross and there to die as a substitute for our sins, and the work of Jesus Christ in that on the cross between 12 noon and 3 p.m., he died spiritually as our substitute. Since sin, I mean, excuse me, since death and suffering are the consequences of spiritual death, Jesus Christ had to also die physically so that he could demonstrate victory over death through the resurrection. So the Lord's table is the opportunity for the believer to be reminded of all that we have and all that the grace of God has provided for us to remind us that we have everything, not because of who and what we are, but because of who and what, who and what Jesus Christ is. And that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins, and we are not any different. We have all had to have the same uh, penalty paid for us. And it is to remind us of all that God has done for us. So in that sense, it is a test for each believer to focus during this time on what we know in our souls in relationship to the doctrines of Christology, the person and work of Jesus Christ, to reflect upon the promises that we know, to reflect upon the scripture we know, and the doctrine we know about Jesus Christ. Now, it's important that we understand two things about the Lord's table. First of all, it is for anyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is not for anyone who is not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not restricted to church membership or any other human factor. It is for anyone who has expressed faith alone in Christ alone. Secondly, when we come to the Lord's table, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. The Apostle Paul warned the Corinthians that there were many sick and weak, weak and sickly among them because they had not come to the Lord's table in a worthy manner. They had come out of fellowship. They were treating it lightly. They were using it as an opportunity for drunkenness and uh, overeating and partying because in the early church they would often have a meal associated with the Lord's table just as Passover was a meal associated with it. But they would abuse the Lord's table and they were out of fellowship. And so Paul said that we are to examine ourselves first. So we always take a few moments of silent prayer. And then I will ask uh, Jim Sexton to return thanks for the bread. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we are thankful for this opportunity we have here, the freedom of this country to uh, worship you, Father day in and day out, uh, but now as we come to this, uh, this communion table, this memorial, uh, to the work of Christ Father, this first element of the bread, which uh, represents uh, the sinless humanity of Christ, that uh, Jesus Christ was a man, uh, absolute a human man, Father, but uh, without the old sin nature, without Adam's original sin imputed to him, uh, living the perfect life that we could not live. Uh, being worthy to go to the cross on our behalf, that uh, that he could do this as a re representative for all mankind throughout history, and that uh, being God's Father, that uh, that it covered uh, this uh, payment for sin covered all mankind throughout history. Uh, we know from your Word, Father, you say that he knew he who knew no sin, Father. Uh, we want to focus on that here on this first element that he was without sin. Uh, something that uh, we could not accomplish on our own. We have uh, minus righteousness. We have a debt that we could not pay. But as uh, at our faith in Christ, uh, we are given that uh, righteousness, given your righteousness, and, and 
justified. Now, Father, as we focus on this, uh, the first part of the communion service is spread that we do believe that Christ uh, was sinless and worthy to pay this uh, penalty on our behalf. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Jesus then took the bread, and having broken it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, This bread is my body, which is given as a substitute for you. Take and eat. Now I'm going to ask Bryce if he would please return thanks for the cup. Heavenly Father, as we have seen in the first element, of the bread where we picture Jesus Christ's perfect, sinless humanity, Father, we are reminded of the fact that we are exactly the opposite of that. We are absolute sinful. We are born in sin, with sin nature. We are imputed with Adam's original sin. And every single day of our lives, Father, we, we commit the personal sin. And that underscores the need we have for a perfect Savior. And that is what we are picturing now, Father, with the cup is the perfect work of Jesus Christ upon the cross where he paid the penalty for our sins. And by doing that, Father, he redeemed us from the slave market of sin. We are now given access to you, Father. He tore down the barrier that existed between us, and he also absolutely satisfied your perfect righteous standard. So as we raise this cup together, Father, we are mindful of the perfect work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ upon the cross. We ask your blessings on the cup now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Our Lord then took the third cup, which is called the cup of redemption, and he said, as often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you that we have this opportunity to study your word. Uh, Your word tells us the absolute truth. Your word is uh, the ultimate revelation by which all other revelation is judged. The psalmist said, it is in thy light that we see light. Now, Father, as we come to your word today, we may study some things that perhaps uh, challenge us. We may see some things developed that perhaps uh, might even step on some toes. But, Father, we pray that we might have the objectivity to realize this is your word and that you have uh, uh, revealed these things to us in order to teach us how to think as you would have us to think and not as the world around us would have us to think. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen. First John chapter 2, verse 15. There we have the prohibition, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. The way John sets up this this verse shows that there is a direct there is a direct opposition between loving the world or loving God the Father, one or the other. These are opposites. They are antithetical to one another. You cannot love the world and love the Father at the same time. You can't have a little love for the world and more love for the Father. You can't have a little love for the Father and a lot of love for the world. It's one or the other. These are mutually exclusive absolutes. So we are forbidden to love the world. This is expressed in the present active in imperative. This is the present active imperative, the second person plural, which emphasizes the ongoing character quality. As a prohibition, we are to make this a habit, a character pattern, because this is something that is to generally characterize the life of the believer. We are not to love the world. The world is the Greek word cosmos, which refers to something that has order, that has a regular disposition, arrangement, or adornment. The adornment brings in the facet that it is something that is attractive. The cosmos was used in relationship to the uh, adornment or decoration or what we would call the cosmetics uh, that a woman would wear to beautify herself. But it brings in the idea that not only is this a systematic orderly arrangement of ideas, but that there is something about this arrangement of ideas that is attractive. And it is attractive to our sin nature. 
Our sin nature is attracted to the thought forms of the cosmic system because the cosmic system provides the rationales, the justifications, the excuses we so easily discover in order to justify our own sinfulness, in order to justify our own sinful actions, in order to justify uh, whatever behavior we want to engage in that is contrary to Scripture. And then the third thing we noticed in terms of our exegesis of the passage is that the phrase, love of the Father, which is a genitive, should be taken as an objective genitive. It is love for the Father. If is a third-class condition, indicating that you may or may not demonstrate love for the world. It is potential. Any believer can love the world. Any believer can, and, and almost every believer, to one degree or another, does have an, attract, an attraction and rapport with worldly thinking. And when we do love the world, when we're operating on cosmic thinking, then the, that is mutually exclusive of loving God. And we have seen in our study of John that loving God is not something that happens when you're a brand new baby believer, but it's something that comes over time as we learn everything that God has done for us. We learn the dimensions of the work of Christ on the cross. And as we come to understand everything that God has provided for us and supplied for us, that's when we begin to love Him. We can't love whom we don't know. It's not just a matter of emotion. It is a matter of, uh, of obedience, too, because Scripture says that if we love God, we obey Him. So last week we began our study of worldliness, what it means in the Bible to be worldly. Too often this has been expressed in fundamental circles as, as uh, don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls that do, uh, don't dance, uh, just a list of prohibitions, confusing uh, in some cases, sinful behavior. In other cases, not sinful behavior, just taboos with worldliness. Worldliness is not necessarily displayed in specific overt actions. It may culminate in that. It may be because we have a worldly mindset. We think like an unbeliever. We act like an unbeliever. But the concept of worldliness that is tied up in the Greek word cosmos focuses on thinking, ways of thinking, many different ways of thinking. So last time we began the introduction with the doctrine of the cosmic system, and we covered the first six points, and uh, some of you weren't here last time, so I'll briefly review them so we can come, come back to speed on this. Cosmos, first point. Cosmos, the Greek word cosmos, spelled with a K, in the negative sense describes the entire arrangement and system of thinking arrayed against God. It has as its primary meaning order, arrangement, and adornment. Last time I pointed out that when God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis chapter 1, uh, everything hung together. It had a beauty, it had an adornment, it had an attraction, it had an in- inherent consistency, and everything was beautiful. And then in Genesis 1-2, we see the judgment of God on that creation because of the sin of Lucifer. And now what Lucifer's agenda is in the post-fall environment of planet Earth is to try to resurrect that order, that beauty, and he is trying to do that through the human race. Point number two. So in that sense, way of conclusion of point one, in that sense, the cosmic system is Satan's counterfeit attempt to, to duplicate what God did in the original creation. 
Point number two, Satan is the ruler of the cosmic system. He is said in the scripture to be the ruler of the cosmic system. He is still the ruler, even in a post-cross environment, he is still the ruler of the cosmic system. John 12:31 states, Now judgment is upon this world, now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. And in 14.30, I will not speak much more with you, Jesus said, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Now the ruler of the world is Satan, and he was defeated at the cross, but he still has power in this life. He has not been bound. You will, on occasion, run into somebody who will teach that Satan has been bound because they are amillennial in their interpretation of prophecy. Amillennial means that they... Uh, the the a at the beginning is the alpha prefix from Greek, which is a negation. It's like our word un. Uh, it negates the millennium. They do not believe in a literal millennium, and they think that when Revelation 20 talks about Satan being bound, that he's bound today. But um, that is only because they take binding in a very superficial way. They want to make it equivalent to his defeat on the cross and not in activity. So Satan is still active today. Uh, according to 1 Peter chapter 5, he goes about like a roaring lion. Now, how he can go about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour and be bound is beyond me. But that's the inconsistency that you always arrive at when you buy into a system based on uh, a non-literal interpretation of Scripture. Our third point, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This is still true today because uh, John re- refers to this in 1 John 5.19. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He said that, wrote that approximately 60 years after Jesus died on the cross. So Satan is still, as Hal Lindsey said in his title, alive and well on planet Earth. Point number four, Satan as the ruler of the cosmic system was judged on the cross. Satan, as the ruler of the cosmic system, was judged on the cross. So his defeat is established by the work of Christ on the cross. And this is referred to in John 16:11, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. The ruler of this world has been judged, and that is a... Uh, although Jesus said that the night before he went to the cross, that is a future... Uh, Eris that indicates that the, the event is so sure and certain, though it's in the future, that it's referred to as having already been accomplished. And then we came to point five. The cosmic system has its own way of thinking. The cosmic system has its own way of thinking. It has its own view of ultimate reality. So you get out in the, in the world of thinkers, and people, and, and whether they are profound thinkers or just common, everyday, ordinary variety uh, thinkers, they all, everybody wants to construct in their mind some ultimate view of reality. That's what philosophers call metaphysics. And so every system has its own ultimate view of reality. What's out there? Is there a God? What's that God made of? Is the God personal, impersonal? Is he knowable? Is he not knowable? Everybody has some view of that. And there are a multitude of approaches. See, the cosmic system isn't one approach. It's made up of a multitude of approaches, some of which are internally consistent, some of which are eclectic and not eternally con- internally consistent, but all of which are designed by Satan in order to confuse and distract 
the thinking of human beings. Number one, to blind the minds. Notice it doesn't say to blind the emotions, but to blind the minds of the unbeliever in 2 Corinthians 4.4. So he wants to distract, distort, and destroy the thinking of the unbeliever so they can't understand or perceive truth. And secondly, he wants to distract and deceive believers so that they will not uh, advance to spiritual maturity. And he does this through any number of different means, ways of thinking, ideas, concepts, rationalizations, in order to distract people. So the cosmic system has its own view of ultimate reality, what philosophy calls metaphysics. Second, it has its own view of knowledge, or the authority in knowledge, which uh, philosophers call epistemology. Third, it has its own view of values, whether there are absolutes or not, what is ethical, what is non-ethical, what the basis for that is, what's right and what's wrong. So every system has its own view of right and wrong. And fourth, it has its own standards for beauty. That's what philosophy calls aesthetics. And the Greeks were a master of that, and so Paul has to deal with that as he does when he addresses the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, we do speak wisdom. Here, it, the wisdom refers to, in this verse, divine viewpoint. We do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, Ionos, not from the source of this age, because the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, is Satan. It's not from this age, nor from the rulers of this age who are passing away. That's temporal. So, right now, we see the human viewpoint, or cosmic thinking, is temporal. But he says in verse 7, But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, which God predestined before the ages to our glory. So by uh, describing this as a mystery, we know that he is speaking about the divine viewpoint revealed in, in the New Testament, in the church age, that this was not revealed in the Old Testament. Mystery refers to undisclosed information. Previously unrevealed information. It's not talking about a murder mystery, trying to read to the end of the book, find out what happens. It's talking about something that has not been revealed. It was hidden. So he is saying we speak or we teach wisdom, that is divine viewpoint, in a mystery. It has not been revealed. He's not cloaking it. He's not saying we speak it so that... uh, It's somewhat abstruse and difficult for you to understand, but that this doctrine was not revealed in the Old Testament. It was the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. That is the glory of the church age. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. In verse 9. Now look, at this verse, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, is talking about knowledge derived from the senses. Knowledge derived from the senses, and that is called empiricism. The approach to knowledge, where you base truth on what is derived from sense knowledge, what you hear, what you see, what you taste, what you smell, from, the, from sense knowledge, is empiricism and which have not entered into the heart of man, and here that cardia should not be translated heart but mind, which have not entered into the mind of man. And that refers to the other system that was popular among the Greeks, which is rationalism. Rationalism was the 
system of philosophy developed by Plato. Empiricism was the system of philosophy developed by Aristotle. So what Paul is saying here is that empiricism doesn't get you there. Rationalism doesn't get you there. There has to be a third system of knowledge, and that is revelation. Verse 10, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. So that brings us to an understanding that there are at least three systems of knowledge. Now, we then went to point six, which explains the uh, systems of knowledge, and actually there are four. Paul refers to two there, and I have four on my chart on epistemology, which we'll review in a minute. Point number six, man has always sought to establish his authority of knowledge apart from revelation. Man in his autonomy, autonomy means self-law, Man, in his independence from God, wants to establish that I know truth apart from God. I don't need God. I don't need to listen to God. I can go out there and I can learn and, de- and develop on my own views of what, what makes life work and what absolutes are just based on my own abilities, my own reasoning or my own experience. Now, these systems are developed historically. There are three main human viewpoint systems. And there is only one divine viewpoint system. The, we'll look at it in terms of three issues. Now, you have to get this down because everything that I'm going to say, when we go beyond this to try to understand this, this thing that's going on today called postmodernism, to understand what's going on in terms of postmodernism, the shifts that are taking place today, uh, and major changes have taken place in the last 15 years, the way intellectuals think. Now, you may say, well, I'm not an intellectual. I don't care what they do. But the intellectuals are teaching your kids at college. And even if your kids aren't in college, the kids that they're teaching in college are going to come out and they're going to go into the classroom and teach those ideas to your kids. And then your kids are going to go come home one day and they're going to start espousing views and ideas and they're going to have assignments in school that come out of this postmodern framework. And you're going to wonder what in the world ever happened to education. And um, you just pick up the paper and you read the paper and you're going to see these things. Uh, Once you become attuned to what's going on, what the verbiage is, that kind of thing, what the ideas are, then you will start seeing it everywhere. It will help explain why it is that we can have uh, situations where the uh, uh, press... uh, press advisor or the, 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 at, at the White House can be asked a question, well, if the president did this, said he did this uh, now, and five years ago said he didn't do that, which is true, and the, um, the spokesman can say, well, both are true. See, that's postmodern thinking. The truth is pure, is fluid. And see, when you grow up in a system dominated by that, as we all, uh, as we all have, then it subtly influences our own thinking. So this is where we're headed, is to understand the background for this and just to make sure we have the vocabulary to be able to understand the dynamics. So the first system is rationalism. Rationalism meaning pure reason. The starting point is innate ideas in the human mind, starting from those innate ideas, Man can then reason to understand the, the nature of all reality. 
But the starting point is really faith in human ability. It's really faith in, in, in the reality of those innate ideas that are perceived by man. Now, I want to come back. Remember those innate ideas, because when we get to our third system here, uh, it's going to be important to understand that. The, the method that is used is logic and reason. It's independent logic and reason, independent from God's Word. It's just man starting on his own, operating on his own, using logic and reason. It's a rigorous use of logic and rigorous use of reason. Empiricism. Empiricism came along and says, no, the starting point is not what's in the mind, because how does it get there? It gets there from external sense perception. So we have to start with what we, what we see, what we touch, what we, what we experience. So it starts with sense perceptions. This is the development of the scientific method, you observation and then analysis. Uh, sense perceptions, external experience, scientific method, and again, it is faith in a human ability. It always, every system of knowledge, you can't know something without presupposing faith. You can't know anything, you can't do anything, um, you can't think anything without presupposing faith. And so faith for empiricism, the object in faith differs in all these systems, and that's what makes the difference. In rationalism, it's faith in human thinking. In empiricism, it's faith in our ability to interpret the data that comes in through the senses. And the method is the same. It's the independent use of logic and reason, rigorous use of, of, of logic and reason. But see, historically, there always is a reaction to rationalism and empiricism. They combined during the Enlightenment, and often the two together are simply referred to as rationalism because of the fact that they both operate on the rigorous use of reason and logic. But they combine together to develop a scientific method in the modern scientific age. But see, science can only go so far. Science cannot provide ultimate answers and ultimate solutions. Science cannot discover God. Science cannot provide a basis for ethics or for values. And so there's always this reaction. It happened in the ancient Greek world. It happened uh, in the 19th and early 20th century in Western civilization, and the reaction is always to mysticism. The reaction is always to mysticism because man can't, uh, man has this innate feature that God built into him that he must operate as if there's order and meaning in the universe, and we can't function as if there is no order and meaning in the universe. And when, if rationalism and empiricism can't provide the answers to order and meaning in the universe, then, and that ended up in, and uh, existentialism and nihilism in the 19th century, and then all of a sudden everything seems hopeless, but man can't live as if there is no hope and no meaning, so you just assume there's meaning, and that opens the door to mysticism. And mysticism is based on, it, it's the, it still starts with innate ideas that I've got, but these are more of an intuitive ideas. And uh, mysticism emphasizes the inner private experience. That I've had this experience or this insight or this intuition. And again, it's still faith in human ability that I can properly interpret this, this feeling I've had, that I can properly uh, understand what, what this, this private experience was, and, and uh, it's not dependent on reason. So in mysticism, it's still independent of Scripture, but it is non-logical, non-rational, and non-verifiable. It rejects logic and reason. Logic and reason are bankrupt, says the mystic. Logic and reason can't get you answers. So to heck with logic and reason. Logic and reason are simply tools that, that uh, 
people develop in order to enslave us in some sort of, of uh, intellectual bondage. And so we just have to go with, with the non-rational. Don't ever impose anything or expect anything to be logical. And that's really where postmodernism fits in. Modernism is, was based on the enlightenment thinking of rationalism and empiricism. And postmodernism recognizes in many ways they're, they're correct in their critique of modernism. Recognizes the bankruptcy of modernism. And as Christians, we would say modernism was bankrupt. It can't get you ultimate answers. But the solution is not to swing over to irrationalism and emotion. And that's ultimately where postmodernism ends up, is in mysticism and subjectivity. In contrast to those three systems of thought, Scripture is based on the fact that there is objective revelation. The problem is you get people who grow up in a, mystic, in a world where mysticism is prevalent, and they're attracted, they, 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 they want to blend mysticism with the Bible. So they come to the Bible and they'll interpret things like when God speaks to the prophets as some sort of inner, intuitive, uh, subjective, mystical insight. And uh, the rationalist says, well, God doesn't speak at all because you can't prove it, you can't measure it, you can't put it in a test tube, you can't observe it, so it didn't happen. And th- those are the differences. So in ration- pure rationalism and empiricism, in modernism, there's a rejection of religion and God. In mysticism, there's an acceptance of anything that you can throw the label God on and the uh, acceptance of any kind of supernaturalism because uh, reason and logic have been uh, rejected. But you have to understand that the world always puts pressure on Christians. And in an earlier day, for example, under the influence of uh, rationalism and empiricism, there was very little said about Satan and the demonic. In fact, that exists in, in pure Protestant liberalism, the existence of a personal devil was rejected. And now, in the post-modern uh, period, for example, you come along and now you find Satan everywhere. And that, what's that produced in the church? That's produced a view of spiritual warfare where everything's the cause of some demon. There are demons everywhere. Demons produce, uh, are always associated. I heard one uh, professor who got fired from Dallas, by the way, for his views, uh, said that anytime there's sexual abuse, a demon's involved. Well, where do you get that from Scripture? Because if you're starting operating on that as a, as a belief system, then anytime you have sexual abuse, the first thing you have to do is go in there and have some kind of exorcism. And all of a sudden, you're just way off the page as far as Scripture is concerned, and you're just operating on whatever you think seems to be right. So we always have to be careful that there's no blending of the other three systems with Revelation. Revelation is set apart. It is objective. God reveals it and God validates it. Always in Scripture. Even when He gave Revelation in private, He always validated it in public. And it is based on the dependent use of logic and reason. See, we don't reject reason and logic as as believers. But you use it under the authority. You you, you don't just... When when you look out there in terms of, of empiricism and you're collecting data... You don't stop at the Bible. For example, modern science, when they go out there and they're trying to collect data about science, they never consult the Scriptures. But the Scriptures contain information that changes the way you're going to interpret biology, anthropology, all kinds of astronomy, everything is going to be changed if you take and accept as true what's in the Scriptures. And that's part of the facts that you have to evaluate. 
in order to develop your, your scientific theories. But what happens in science is they just exclude at the get-go anything, any of the facts in Scripture as being non-relevant. So, reason, in, in, as a Christian, our logic and our reason starts with Scripture. And we use logic and reason to understand Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean we're always right. There always has to be some, some reevaluation of things. Here's a quote that uh, Charlie Clough referred to uh, two or three weeks ago when he was here that I thought perfectly illustrated this point. It's a quote from Julian Huxley, who's called uh, Darwin's Bulldog. And Huxley makes it real clear, the point I'm making, and that is that all knowledge is based ultimately on faith, even the, the uh, so-called objective scientific knowledge of the evolutionists. Huxley wrote, I believe firmly that the scientific method, although slow and never claiming to lead to complete truth, how does he know that? How does he know it's not complete? Um, and never claiming to lead to complete truth is the only method that gives satisfactory foundations to belief. Now, there at the end of that quote, when he uses the, the uh, noun belief, what he's talking about there is the kind of faith or doctrine that we're talking about as believers. We have belief systems. And what he's trying to claim here is that first you have rationalism or empiricism and you go through the scientific method and you establish a foundations before you ever believe anything. But notice the second word in his statement. He gives it away in the second word. He says, I believe. See, he's making a belief statement. So ultimately, rationalism and empiricism, the scientific method, is based on belief. Belief First, then comes first, and then your empirical observations, then your rational logic. What he's doing is he's reveal, this reveals the hidden presupposition in the scientific method, and that is the presupposition has a belief in human ability. And that underlies all cosmic thinking. It brings us to point seven. It is a way of thinking that produces a lifestyle that is consistent with it. An autonomous way of thinking produces a lifestyle of autonomy. That is a lifestyle that is independent from God and develops its values and ideas independent from God. And there is a lifestyle consistent with cosmic thinking, and it might be religious and ethical. For example, the legalistic lifestyle of the Pharisees was just as worldly as the antinomian sinful lifestyle of the Corinthians. So this cosmic way of thinking can be religious, it can be ethical, it can be non-religious, and it can be immoral. So you can't just squeeze cosmic thinking into one, uh, one box. It has many different dimensions to it. One example of this was what Paul reveals in 1 Corinthians 5.10. He's called them, the, the obviously, worldly already. He says, I did not at all mean with the... He tells them not to so associate with immoral people. And then he says, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world. That is, the immoral people of this cosmic system. Or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters. But then you would have to go out of the world. So there he indicates that uh, covetousness, that is, materialism... Uh, lust for material things, swindlers or idolaters, which brings in the religious dimension, uh, is all part of cosmic thinking. Idolaters were very religious, but they were into cosmic thinking. Uh, 
Now, there's all kinds of different ways of cosmic thinking. Let's just go through sort of a historical list of the way man has sought to explain and organize reality. You see, you have two, two basic fields of study that try to answer the ultimate questions of man. Ultimate questions are, is there anything out there? Is there, are there any absolutes or is everything relative? What is the ultimate destiny of man? Does, does man have a soul? Is the soul material or immaterial? These are the basic ultimate questions that people ask. Now, there's two fields of study that seek to answer those questions, theology and philosophy. Philosophy seeks to answer those apart from revelation. Theology, biblical theology, answers those questions based on revelation. So, we're looking at philosophy and philosophical systems as examples of cosmic thinking. You have Aristotelianism in the ancient world. You have Aristotelianism and Platonism. And these were two different systems. Now, this is important for a couple of reasons that I'll demonstrate in a minute. But Platonism emphasizes the ideal. And Aristotelianism was empirical and emphasized sense data. Now, what happens is Platonism goes through a revision at about the time of Christ... Because Plato was followed by Aristotle, Aristotle debunked Platonism, and then you have a reaction back to Neoplatonism as developed by Plotinus and some other other thinkers. But Neoplatonism is based on, or has as its ultimate metaphysic a dualism, the eternal existence of both good and evil. It is. Uh, it also is related to Gnosticism that there is some kind of special secret knowledge one has to uh, understand in order to uh, really have the full life, really have a meaningful life. And it also gave birth to docetism. Docetism is the... uh, Because in Platonism, the ultimate reality is up here in the realm of the ideal, not down here in the realm of the material. So the material is downplayed. It's just merely a pale reflection. If you ever had to read Plato's Republic when you're in the cave, the ultimate reality is not the reflection, but what, what causes the reflection, the ideal. And so uh, uh, when the material is downplayed, you get the development in Platonism of asceticism. Asceticism means that I have to stay away with everything physical. I mean, you know, sex is bad. Any kind of physical contact is bad. Anything that focuses on on the enjoyment of physical pleasure is wrong because the physical is ultimately bad. So you see right away, see how I'm making this application. The early church, because they grew up in an environment dominated intellectually by Neoplatonism, it gave birth to asceticism and monasticism and all those. Uh, ascetic practices that took place in the early Middle Ages. Furthermore, because it de-emphasizes the material and in its most extreme form, material was evil and the ideal or the spiritual is good, that came across in both Gnosticism and Docetism as saying that the material is evil and therefore Jesus Christ, if He is the Son of God, could not have uh, had an actual physical material body because for God to be uh, linked to a physical, material body means that he would become evil. And that's the 
that's just a contradiction of what we covered in the, in the Lord's table this morning, that Jesus Christ is in, in humanity. He is sinless. He has a perfect human body without sin. There was, because of the virgin birth, there was no transference of a sin nature, and there's no imputation of Adam's original sin. So what happens is that in the material realm, or in terms of, of, of their, the worldliness at the time of 1 John, under Neoplatonism, you have a, uh, early not forms of Gnosticism and docet, uh, Docetism, which are uh, negating the uh, physical humanity of Christ. What's the major issue in 1 John? Now, this is going to take you back. We've been here a long time. This takes you back to, to uh, last January. Major issue in 1 John is they're dealing with false teachers in the congregation who are teaching a docetic view of Jesus Christ. That he is not, um, that he's not, was not fully full. He just appeared that way. Docetism from dokeo in the Greek, which means to simply appear, to have a certain appearance. He wasn't truly 100% humanity. And this is an assault, therefore, on the whole spiritual life. Because what Jesus is demonstrating in his true humanity is that under the power of God, the Holy Spirit, God has provided everything we need to surmount any and all difficulties in life. So you see, when they come into the congregation, they start reinterpreting Revelation on the basis of the dominant worldview at the time, which was, was docetism. They start screwing up everything in Christianity, and they, they end up reinterpreting and reshaping the basic, uh, basic Christology, which means they destroy the meaning of the gospel and spiritual life. So that's, just, that, that's what was going on at their time. But the same thing goes on today and in every generation. There are dominant ideas out there that, that come across from our educational system, come across in the, quote, common sense that our parents teach us when we're kids, that come across in the peer pressure from... Uh, from those we grow up with. Now, this is dealing with more sophisticated forms, Aristotelianism, Platonism, and Neoplatonism. In the ancient world, you also had the mystery religions. See, the mystery religions were the mystic reaction to the rationalism and empiricism of Platonism and Aristotelianism. You have the mystery religions. Mystery religions came along because uh, Platonism and Aristotelianism had debunked the Greek mythology, the Greek religious system. They said, you know, there, there really are no gods up on Olympus. Uh, they don't solve any problems. We have to rely on human reason. Well, human reason never provides a solution, so that ended up being bankrupt, as it always is. And throughout history, there's always a swing from rationalism to skepticism to mysticism. That is the continuous flow. And in mysticism, the emphasis is on intuitive insights. So they worship the the main gods here were, were Bacchus, also known as Dionysius, and Apollo. Now, where does Apollo operate? Apollo operates up at just north of... um, of Corinth at Delphi. And there you have the, um, I'm going to tie all this together, you're going to love this. Just north of uh, Corinth at Delphi, and there you have the Pythian priestess who is indwelt by the 
Puthanos, which is where we get our word python. She was symbolized by a python. You have the Puthanos demon who is speaking through the priestess called the Oracle at Delphi. And everybody in the ancient world for centuries would go to Delphi, and the Pythian priestess of that time would then foretell their future. And she would do that by speaking in glossolalic utterances, which was a part of the mystery religions. So that was, and six months out of the year, Apollo's on vacation, and Bacchus or Dionysius would come in and take his place. So you see, the connect, what I'm connecting here is the glossolalic utterance of the Pythian demon who, who indwelt the uh, Oracle of Delphi, Bacchus religion. And in Bacchus religion, the way you became spiritual, say you've rejected reason, so now it's irrational, and the way you become spiritual is you have to have some kind of encounter with the God. And that God then, when you reach that level of spirituality, that God is going to possess you and you're going to speak in, in, in articulate utterances. And see, that's, where, where's this happening? This is happening in Delphi, which is 20 miles north of Corinth. So this is the background for the Corinthians falling in love with glossolalic utterance because they came out of a pagan background that taught them that if you want to be close to God and have a personal relationship with God, this is symbolized by having this uh, mystical encounter with God where your spirit was exchanged for the spirit of the God and then the God would speak through you in this uh, ecstatic utterance. And so then they got saved and they heard about the gift of tongues and they interpreted the biblical gift of languages as what they had experienced in their pagan background. And that's how worldliness enters into the church. And so the other way that they would do this is that they would um, improve their chances of having this mystical encounter with the god uh, Dionysius is because Dionysius is the god of wine. They would imbibe uh, as much wine as they could to get good and inebriated so that this would bring them closer to the god. Now, they also did this over in Turkey because Dionysius and Apollo, Apollo originally came from Turkey and was brought over to Greece and absorbed into the pantheon there. And what's, what town is located over in Asia Minor in Turkey? Ephesus. So there is an Ephesian background to Dionysian worship. So Paul has to deal with that problem and the problem of worldly thinking. They're affecting their view of spirituality. So he says, don't get drunk with wine. And it's a dative of means there. And he's saying, don't get drunk by means of wine. Because they're looking at wine as the means to getting in contact with the God. And so they just brought that kind of cosmic thinking with them after they were saved. And they said, well, if I want to get close to God, what I always did was I went out and I just uh, grabbed a couple of liters of wine and uh, enjoyed myself. And then God would speak to me. And what he's saying is, don't get drunk by means of wine, which is uh, dissipation, but be filled by means of God the Holy Spirit. So that was the ultimate goal in the whole process, was to be filled with the God. And so what, what Paul is saying is it's not done by wine, it's done by the Holy Spirit who fills you with the Word of God. So that just shows you that, that there's all kinds of different ways in which the world's thinking is, is brought into the church by believers who are bringing that baggage with them from their uh, pagan background before they were saved.
So the same kinds of things happen today. Today we have people in the church in the last two centuries in America who have brought with them all kinds of ideas from idealism, from transcendentalism, like in the early 19th century, the transcendentalists brought their utopic vision with them into the church, and that fed another stream of post-millennialism and utopianism. See, those were ideas, Christians who think that the church can reform society and that the role of the church is to uh, perfect society. Not that the church isn't to have its influence as the salt, but there's a difference between the church having its influence as the salt of the earth and the church reforming and perfecting society. Those are two completely different concepts. And one has its roots in the Bible. The other has its roots in coming out of the perfectionistic ideas of the early 19th century. Those ideas, in turn, affected Marxism and socialism. And some of the hottest books out there in the last 20 years having to do uh, with money and social programs and Christianity are nothing but thinly disguised socialistic and Marxist ideas. Marxism has really had an impact in some segments of Christianity through uh, liberation, what's called liberation theology and process theology. And what it does is it gets everybody all distorted and away from the Word of God. And then you have influences from Darwinism and influences from feminism. And uh, it, it's amazing. I had a conversation with a guy this last week, and in the course of conversation, this other fellow was a pastor as well, we both made the observation how many times we have seen women in our churches, on the one hand, they will talk about how you know there shouldn't be women pastors, and they will affirm all the right things about the role of women in ministry and wives in the home as being submissive to their husbands. And then they go home and put the pants on. Why? Because they've been so indoctrinated by our culture in terms of feminism that they don't even realize they're thinking that way. They know that the Bible says this. And they do just the opposite in day-to-day practice, and they don't even see the difference because their thinking, their thinking has been so shaped by the feminism of society or in the way they view job, meaning in life, raising children. All of that has been subtly affected by the feminist philosophies around us. So that's why I'm taking this time to talk about cosmic thinking is that we have to understand that we have to remove these elements of thought. And sometimes they're hard. Sometimes they're, they're subtly rooted in our thinking. We've so absorbed these things in our upbringing that it, it takes a lot of effort to root them out of our thinking. Now, whenever you teach Scripture, you have to do two things. It's sort of a 20, 80-20 or, or, or 70-30 proposition. About 20 or 30 percent is negative. And I don't like to focus on the negative because that's not, that, that's not contributing towards spiritual growth. But it, it, I've seen it happen time and time again where you see Christians who just are ineffective in the Christian life. And it's basically because they're so inculcate, they, they've so imbibed uh, the, the ideas and thinking of the cosmic system around them that as soon as they leave church, they're trying to apply the scriptures within a cosmic thinking. They're out of fellowship most of the time. And they, they constantly face defeat in their lives, in their spiritual life, in their marriages, in their careers, in their jobs, because they're, 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 they're not addressing the core issue, which is the, the very way and format in which, they, in which they think. Well, not only do you have various philosophical ideas, but you also have all kinds of religious ideas. And if you want to see the danger of religion, just watch what's happening with fanatic Islam right now. 
But you have all these um, religions are, Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a relationship with God on the basis of the grace of God. It's demonstrated at the cross through Jesus Christ. So we have, uh, as another form of worldly thinking, the concept that God's blessing comes as a result of something I do. That's just as worldly as the idea that I get what I deserve. And that's just as much a concept of worldliness as any of these other things that we have addressed. Now, we have to recognize that cosmic thinking is completely antagonistic to God. Point number eight. The cosmic system is antagonistic to God, His plan, His principles, and His procedures. It is Mutually exclusive to love for God. You're either one or the other. You're either operating on God's divine viewpoint or on man's human viewpoint, but you can't do both. They're mutually exclusive. James 4.4, Paul says, You adulteresses, and by that he's referring to the fact that they're spiritually unfaithful to the God who saved them. He says, Do you not know that friendship... And here he uses a word based on the Greek verb phileo, which has to do with attraction. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If you're a believer and you are uh, attracted to or operating on worldly concepts of thought, then you are an enemy of God and there will never be any success, any advance in the spiritual life. So the cosmic system is 180 degrees uh, antithetical to Bible doctrine. Point number nine. Therefore, the believer is to extricate himself from the morass of cosmic thinking in the soul. You have to go in there and surgically remove the cosmic assumptions that are dominating your soul and they're the source of defeat in a spiritual life. So that's one reason we have to spend a certain amount of time on the negative, not just the positive of what the spiritual life consists, but the negative in order to paint the picture, in order to help you understand the times, understand the thinking of the world around you so that you can see how it is displayed in your own soul. So we are to extricate ourselves from the morass of cosmic thinking in the soul. Romans 12, 1 and 2 Paul says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that is related to grace, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to cosmic thinking, but be transformed, how? By the renovation of your thinking that you may demonstrate what the will of God is, that it is good, acceptable, and perfect. So the way to do this is to take in the word of God and to, so that it exposes the garbage that's there that we've absorbed from this cosmic system around us. James 1.27 says, This is pure and undefiled religion. This is a positive use of the word religion. In the sight of our God and Father, to visit or, orphans and widows in their distress. That relates to application of doctrine. We went, covered that in our study of James 1, that the focus here is on doing the Word of God, and this is just one way of application, is taking care of widows and orphans in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. These are two things he, James focuses on. We are to identify and remove the cosmic thinking that's in our soul. James 4, 5, and 6 says, 
James chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 says, Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us, but He gives us a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And this is the issue, is cosmic thinking is arrogant thinking. It is the thinking of Satan and the demons. And God is going, has given us the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who is going to help us to understand His Word, but we have to humble ourselves under the teaching of a pastor teacher who communicates the Word. Skip a couple other verses. Point number 10. Cosmic thinking, therefore, then, is the thinking of arrogance, the same kind of thinking that characterizes the thought of Satan and the demons. Cosmic thinking is the thinking of arrogance. The same kind of thinking that characterizes the thought of Satan and the demons that independent from God we can make life work. This is seen in James 3:13 through 15, where James writes, "Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom." That is the application of doctrine. That's what wisdom is. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your thinking, this is the contrast. Do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom, that is the jealousy, ambition, arrogance, that wisdom, human viewpoint thinking, is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and the word there for natural is sukikos, meaning soulish, not related to the human spirit, and demonic. So there all human viewpoint and cosmic thinking is labeled as demonic. Point number 11 when the believer is thinking divine viewpoint, then, then the world is going to be opposed to the Christian. When the believer is thinking in terms of divine viewpoint, then the world is going to be opposed to the Christian. The problem is seen in John 15:18 through 19. Jesus says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. That's the problem, is the antagonism of the world. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See, every time we operate on divine viewpoint and not the thinking of the world around us, then we are going to be the targets of those around us. They're going to ridicule us. They're going to reject our thinking. They're going to be hostile to what we, what we think. They're hostile to our opinions because the world hates anyone that's operating on Bible doctrine. But the solution is found in John 17:14 where Jesus in his high priestly prayer says to the Father, I have given them thy world, thy word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. The way to avoid worldly thinking is the word and reliance upon uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and the precedence of the spiritual life established by him in living the Christian life on the basis of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, next time, we're going to come back and we're going to start looking, probably take one hour to delve into postmodernism and its impact today before we move on to understand what verse 16 describes. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to get into these uh, details and to understand how subtle the thinking of the world around us affects our own thinking, our own interpretation of Scripture, and our own application of Scripture. First of all, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation, 
are uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain, that they would put their faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. The only issue for salvation is what do you think about Jesus Christ? It's not a matter of moral reformation. It's not a matter of church attendance, church involvement, or any other human factor. It's simply a matter of recognizing and believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins and that he died and was buried and rose again the third day. Father, we pray for those of us who are believers that we might have the courage to look at our own thinking, to root out the elements of cosmic thinking that still lurk in our souls, that we might uh, have our souls filled with doctrine, that we might be able to live consistently on the basis of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.